Let's pray one more time. Let's ask the Lord to speak. God, in the name of Jesus, we're coming before you, believing you for divine intervention, believing you for might in our inner man, power released to our soul. God, would you come and release the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of you? Would you allow the light of God to be upon the word, to be upon the scriptures? I pray that, God, it wouldn't simply hit our minds and leave, but, God, it would resonate, and that by your spirit you would give us the escort, and that it would bring about changes in our soul, God, changes in our in our mind, in our will, in our emotions. Let the word of God pierce. Let it divide our heart. God, give us a vision. Give us a vision of all that you've destined us unto. We love you. We thank you. In the name of Jesus, everybody said amen. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. This is real, beloved. This is real. I tell you, when, when the storm comes, because it's coming, the wisest place you can be is in fasting and prayer, seeking the Lord night and day. That's the wisest place you can be. This is real. I want to just give an exhortation. We are halfway through a season of fasting and prayer here in the house of prayer. I want to encourage everyone that's been participating at any level. Let's just let's take these last couple laps and let's just go hard out the, at, at, all the way to the finish line. Let's take it all the way out. If you, if you backslid into a burger last week, that's okay. Just press delete. Start over. Let's go for this thing. We've got... Just, just we're halfway there. So let's just go for it. Let's see what the Lord will do. We're in a season, a season of fasting and prayer for the Lord to form in us uh, a Sermon on the Mount lifestyle. We're not earning anything from God, but what we're doing is we're putting ourselves in a place of voluntary weakness, so that God will rewire and rework our minds. It's called uh, being renewed in your mind. It's a deliverance in your paradigms and rip from our minds the spirit of the age. And infuse us with the uh, Sermon on the Mount lifestyle. So, and anybody wants to jump on, you can jump on in. We're going for it for a few more weeks yet. So, let's go for this. All right, Hebrews 11. Verse 13. Part 2 of a series, The God Who Rewards. Verse 13, Hebrews 11 says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises. We talked about that last week, how it's very unusual that he could say that about these heroes of faith, especially like an Abraham and a Sarah, how he could say about an Abraham and a Sarah that they did not receive the promises when we, we see good and well that they did receive things God had promised them, but the very promises that they were talking about, that the writer of Hebrews is talking about, and that they had set their mind on, these were the promises of the age to come, promises of the eternal Promises beyond what you and I look for. And we talked last week about how often what we'll do is we'll set our faith 
uh, for things that impact us here and now, and I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with that, but the anchor of our faith is this, and he says in, in, in Hebrews eleven six 6, that we believe that God is, and that God is a rewarder, and then when we look and we see what God is talking about, when he says God is a rewarder, what he's talking about is the reward of the age to come. Not anything that's temporal. And so when it says that these did not receive the promises, it's not talking about uh, they didn't receive earthly things that God had promised them. What it's talking about is they didn't receive the promises of the eternal rewards that they knew that were due them. And how stunning is it to uh, think that the father of our faith, Abraham, had the entirety of his faith anchored in this, that there was an age to come and a reward system to come and promises that God was going to give him that enabled him to persevere in this life. And when you read Hebrews 11, that whole chapter is clearly about the focus of these heroes of faith upon an eternal reward system. It wasn't about them being focused on a here and now. And so it says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises. But having seen them afar off, they were assured of them. And they embraced them. And they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, or you could say another homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to re- return. What's he saying in verse 15? He's saying, if they had looked at the natural, if they looked at the temporal, if they looked at their earthly citizenship, they would have had the opportunity to go back in and focus on their earthly citizenship. But instead, they desired a better country. Verse 16. That is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared. How stunning is this? A city for them. God has prepared a city for them. Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says this. He has set eternity in our, in our hearts. He set eternity in the hearts of the sons of men. You know what I'm coming to grips with is this. That there is a longing and a nagging within me that continues to witness to me that I'm not made for this place. I'm not made for this realm. All that this realm can offer me is deficient. It becomes deficient. And you can see it. In our society, those that we idolize that are are attaining earthly accolades, what are their lives really, you know, after the divorce, after the drug addiction, after all the alcohol, after all the negativity, What are their lives really but broken and bruised? And I'm finding that there is a nagging within human beings that says, I'm made for something supernatural. I'm made for more than this. I'm not made for this little place. Surely there's got to be more. What is it? God set eternity in your heart. You are hardwired for eternity. You are hardwired for this, that there's another age coming, beloved. That there's a city whose builder and maker is God. You're hardwired and your heart is saying, that is my home, not this place. And what happens is we live bruised and beaten and broken 
When what we do is we throw our anchors down in this life, even though this is the place we're only supposed to be passing through. Because we're not made for this place. All that this place can offer you will not satisfy you. And that's what you come to grips with. And the more you get in touch with that longing, the more you get in touch with that nagging, you realize you are of another place, you are of another age, and all of a sudden, the way that you live this life, it, becomes, it begins to become uh, uh, really clear how you ought to conduct yourself. Because this place is a place we're simply passing through. This is not my home. Heaven is my home. Heaven is my home. Not Atlanta. Not, not any riches that the, the earth can offer me. Not the greatest thing that, that man can create or say about me. None of that. None of that is my home. My home is heaven. I'm, I've got eternity written upon my heart. If you'll come into agreement with, it, with this, that eternity is written on your heart, it will change your entire perspective. Your whole paradigm on how you live this life will fully change. I'm touched with this, that there's an ache inside that says, there's another place that's made for me. More than just made, more than generic, prepared. Prepared. Thought of, considered, had me in mind. He starts weaving it together in the the halls of eternity. God starts forming a place. He goes, oh, little buddy, you're going to like this. He's thinking about me, thinking about my makeup, thinking about my construct. See, we think that when Jesus comes back, we turn into fat babies floating on clouds playing harps. And I appreciate, you know, the Bugs Bunny cartoon version of what the age to come is. But it's just simply not that. When he comes back... Those who are believers will get a glorified body. Do you realize your soul will stay intact? Your mind, your will, and your emotions will be intact? You'll have your personality. Your little goofified personality is going to be intact in the glorified body. Oh, I know. Start doing the math on that. Now, you're going to have a much greater measure of the Holy Spirit than you've got right now. And you're going to have supernatural capacities like you've never dreamed. But your little sweet self that God made is going to be your same little sweet self. Why? Here's what we think. We think when, the glorif- when, we, when we get glorified bodies, bam, now we turn into robots. Beloved, he doesn't want robots. He wants lovers. All sorts of different kind of lovers. And I imagine in the, in, the, in the throne room, you know, the night and day worship, the harp and bowl that's going on there is a little better than ours. And I imagine in the throne room, you're going to have the rockers <laughs> in the glorified body. Why? It's part of your personality. Just, oh, yeah, God. You have the Lou Engel crew. Oh, God. And you're going to have the ballerinas. I mean, you're going to have everybody, you know, doing the dramatic dance. I mean, you have the flag waving section. It's going to all be there. Why? Because you keep your personality. It's going to be supernatural. You have a much greater. I believe this. 
You know how they do the, uh, this is personal. You can do with it what you want. If it's heresy, throw it away. But I believe this. You know how they do the, the, the thing, they say you only use 8 to 10% of your brain. Well, I believe, poof, your brain goes to 100%. I mean, all of a sudden he goes, hey, Billy, I want it. And you go, yeah, I got it. I mean, you're like Radar O'Reilly, like way up there. I mean, you're like, and he goes, here, I want you to read this book. You go, oh, that was awesome. Another one. I, I mean, I really believe that. I believe the mental capacities go off the chart. The physical capacities go off the chart. But you keep your personality, beloved. And those given governorship, those given rulership in the age to come, they actually have decisions committed unto them. And you make those decisions through your personality, by the Spirit of the Lord, in delegation under the greatest authority in all, all the universe, all created order. Under Jesus, you make authorities, I mean, make uh, decisions within your own authority, because he delegates authority to those he's given government in the age to come. Beloved, this is an awesome thing. We have almost no vision of it. And so therefore, because we have almost no vision of it, we live fully and entirely for this age, trying to squeeze all the juice we can out of this life, because we don't believe there's anything coming, but the scriptures are very clear. There's, I mean, there's chapters and chapters and chapters on the age to come. And like I, like I said last week, Isaiah 35, when it says rivers will spring up in the desert, we just go, oh, that's just got to be a spiritual kind of thing, because we know that's not, you know, reality. No, that's reality. Rivers are going to spring up in the desert on the planet. I'm telling you, vegetation is going to flourish. This planet is going to be completely renovated, so much so that in Isaiah 65 and 66, he describes it as a new earth. The curse will be lifted. The land will be healed. You want to transform city, the whole planet will be transformed. In greater measures as those people in those regions, because there will be people who will be living in natural bodies. Oh, now you're going on tilt. There will be people who will be living in natural bodies actually populating the earth in that day. Israel doesn't get saved until after Jesus comes back. It's really clear in, in Zechariah 12 through 14. So before I tilt you too badly, let's stay on this subject. Our thing is we don't have a vision of what these things mean. And therefore, we live anchored in this life. And we live broken and bruised as a result of it, unfulfilled and dissatisfied without vision. There's a much bigger picture going on here. And so here's what I looked at in Hebrews 11. I'm going to try to move through a couple of things tonight. I, <laughs> be glad. I started off with eight pages of notes. I'm down to five. I lopped off a whole section and threw that in the next week, so see how we go. Hopefully I can get through five. But there's, four, there's a, there's a four-step progression here. And these that had not received the promises, but they persevered in this life. That's the point. They persevered in this life. With victory, they persevered. So it says this, that they had seen the promises. That'd be point one, or the first part of the four parts. They saw the promise. They had a vision of what God prepared. I believe Abraham saw it with his eyes. We know many did see it. We know Moses saw it. We know Daniel saw it. We know Ezekiel saw it. Many of the Old Testament saints actually saw the throne. They actually saw the age to come. 
And those of us who aren't blessed with that visionary perception, we've never seen it with our eye or, in a, in our, or even in a dream, there is a seeing we can do with our spirit. You can call it the sanctified imagination. You can you know, call it what you want. But I call it setting our minds on things above. Colossians 3. And when you set your mind on things above and your mind is filled with the Bible, all of a sudden those things you've read in the verses become real in your mind's eye. And it begins to transform your emotions and transform the way you think. And these ones that had seen it, they lived differently on the earth. Oh, beloved. Oh, that we would see it. Oh, that we would perceive it. Oh, that we would come to grips with this. That there's a city made for you. It's been prepared. God thought about you. Prepared a place for you. Jesus says, he goes, Behold, I go and prepare a place for you. I go, now how does that work? Because the Father prepared a place... But Jesus is going to prepare a place. And he starts when he, at the ascension. So, like, what's he doing? Is he, like, adding decor? I mean, like, how does that work exactly? Is, is he expounding on what God prepared? Is he, how does it work? I don't know. But I know this, that God thought about me and he made a place. It's prepared. It's ready for me. It's got me in mind. It's got all the ways that I am in mind. He thought about me, and he, and he thought about my makeup, and he thought about what would be sweet to me. It has to do with the riches of his grace that he wants to show me in the age to, ages to come. And this place he's prepared for me, if I could just see it, I'll live differently in this life. See, if I could just see it, then I won't be so worried about whether I get this or get that in this age. Why? Because 70, 80 years, it's over in a minute. I've got an eternity coming, a place that's prepared for me by God. Could I see it? I ask the Lord, open my vision, open my eyes, give me revelation, let me see. Let me see it, God. Let me be as one of these heroes of faith that had seen it. Oh, how broken and dim we live in this life if we don't see that which he's prepared for us, beloved. We don't conceive of it. If we have the vision of heaven that we're just sort of floating on a cloud for a while... Oh, it's almost an offense to the reality of what he's really made for us. I I mean, my mind boggles over the issues, but I read through the Revelation 21 and I look at the heavenly city and I go, oh my goodness, 12 foundation stones. The lamb is its light. Streets are gold, pure gold. There's a, there's, but there's ground in there because there's, there's trees and there's a river. I mean, how does that work? And it's, it's real tall and real wide. I mean, miles and miles, 1,500 by 1,500. It's got about a, I don't know how, I mean, how deep do you have to make the soil inside the eternal city to get the river to run through? I don't know, but it's got a bunch of ground in there. What's the grass doing? Guaranteed it's got no weeds. What's the river of life doing? What are the trees that are springing up by that river that bring healing to the nations and the earth? What is that? There's a place. Oh, if I could see it. I'd live differently Sunday to Monday to Tuesday to Wednesday to Thursday to Friday to Saturday to Sunday. I'd live different all the months, all the years of my life. I'd live different. I could just see it. And I'm asking him, let me see it. Come on.
Let me see it. You know, I believe our lack of vision, it leaves us casting off restraint in this life. Our lack of vision leaves us running after that which we can attain here in this, in, in this life. And therefore we live swayed and moved and, and every little thing that comes along, we live moved and swayed by that thing. And when pressures come in this life, we have no picture that it's just for a moment. Oh, if we could tap into the reality that eternity is written on our hearts. If we could just see it. And it says they were assured of it. They weren't just told that there's a place they could see. There was a conviction of heart that that place was real. Whether they perceived it or not, some did. You see it once, I guess you're convicted. I guess you're convinced. But they didn't just sort of hear it that there's a place. Their hearts were assured. You know, there's a thing where we've got to move past sort of hearing it here and then getting assured in there. That can only come through getting in the verses. It can only come through getting in the words, getting in the scriptures, finding what the scripture says about the reality of the age to come, finding about what it says. I mean, meditating on Revelation 21, 9 and on, all the way into 22. We've got to meditate on what this thing looks like so we have an assurance that it's there. Because I tell you, there's days I go, oh God, I don't feel like it's there today. You know, you get up, everything goes wrong. You know, you just got, you got the, you've got negative spirit of prayer on you. you know, some days you got like a plus two, plus five. Some days you're like negative three. You've got negative anointing. And it doesn't feel like it's there those days. I remember there's, this last week, I just had 30 minutes where all of a sudden it was like, I could see it and I was assured. For those 30 minutes, I'm telling you, I felt like I could do whatever you wanted me to do, God. Tell, I mean, just tell, just what? You want me to go, like, just to, you know, preach Jesus, just like, right in the middle of Iran? I mean, just take me wherever you want to take me, and I'll do whatever it is, because this isn't my home. There's assurance that will give us boldness in this life. There's an assurance that will bring us into confidence in this life. If we have no assurance of that heavenly possession, if we have no assurance of that heavenly inheritance, I tell you, we will live without confidence. We won't be willing to take risks in God. Obedience will be difficult and faithfulness will, will, will miss it. It will elude us. Oh, that assurance would be ours. They were assured. They lived assured. And then they embraced it. You see it? You're assured and you embrace. And I think the embrace is that they, they step into living the life full of confidence and full of boldness in this age. They're just, they just simply use this age for the glory of God. Living in the embrace of the age to come. They embraced it. How would, how would the bride look in this life if she fully lived in the embrace of the vision of the reward. How would that change the way we handle all of our affairs in this life? See, I'm not trying to say, oh, blow off all the affairs of this life because, you know, heaven's there anyway, I'm going to go there. What I am trying to say is it would fully change the way you employ yourself in faithfulness because the reward in the age to come is fully connected to faithfulness in this life. And all of a sudden, when you can see it, 
something clicks. And when you embrace it, you just live different. You just live differently. There's an assurance that you embrace and you walk it out in a whole different way. And then this is actually where where it lands and this is where it's got to land for us. They made the confession. They made the confession. What was the confession they made? I'm a stranger here. I'm a pilgrim here. I'm a sojourner here. Eternity's written on my heart. This place is not my home. They made the confession, beloved, and that's what we're pressing to, to be ones that make the confession, ones that live the life making the confession that this is not my final place. This is not the place that I get the most satisfaction out of. This is not the place where I throw my anchors down. I do not throw my anchors down. Why? Because I'm a pilgrim here. I'm just passing through. Just passing through. And, the, and, and, and this is where it lands. They made the confession because they understood he'd prepared a place. What is the beauty of a place that the eternal God has prepared? Go in your mind's eye to the most beautiful place on the earth. I'm talking about some place that's got the intricate ecosystem of the world. I mean, just plush and gorgeous and sunsets and water and animals and just aroma and just melody and and romance. Go to that place in your mind's eye. That place is a shadow compared to what he's prepared. It's a shadow compared to what's prepared. It is dim and dull. It's deficient in every measure. It doesn't begin to even measure on the scale of beauty compared to what the eternal God has prepared. The most beautiful place you can imagine. It is a dump compared to the God who's prepared a place. He's prepared a city, a real city that you'll inherit. It's really yours. Oh, if we could get the vision of it in our hearts and our minds, we'll live fully different. We would be changed. I tell you, if we can get the confession, if we can get the confession that we're strangers and pilgrims, if we can get the, hear me, if we can get the confession, if we can get to that place where we can make the confession, I'm a stranger and I'm a pilgrim in this life, we will be delivered from the spirit of this age. Because the spirit of this age is calling you and demanding you to throw your anchors down in this age to get all you can in immediate gratification. It's demanding you to spend your life on all that is fading. If you can get the confession, I I mean, really get it. I'm not just saying, you know, blah, 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 something out of your mouth, but get it. You see it. You're assured of it. You embrace it. And you have the confession. I'm a stranger and I'm a pilgrim. You'll be delivered of the spirit of the age. Why? Because you're secure that your citizenship is in another age. Oh, that that would resonate within us. Oh, that that would bring life within us. Oh, that it would, it would do something in our heart and say, no, 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 I don't want to live as a citizen of this age. 
I started considering the internal, the eternal perspective. How valuable when we tap into that reality in our hearts. How valuable when we tap in to understanding that eternity is set upon us, set in our hearts. Three quick points, because I've got to get to 1 Corinthians 9. Three points, the eternal perspective, it's essential. It's essential for this, embracing and living the Sermon on the Mount lifestyle. It's essential for that. If we, if we are given the task of living the Sermon on the Mount lifestyle without an eternal perspective, I tell you, we will fall. We will fail miserably. Because if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's Matthew 5 through 7, chapter 5 through 7, chapter 6 is all about embracing the reward system. It's all about living for the age to come. In fact, chapter 5, if you can see it, is really all about that as well. In fact, chapter 7 is really all about that. Anyway, it's fully about that, seeing past this age and embracing the reward system. So the eternal perspective is essential. Seeing, being assured, embracing, and making the confession, the eternal perspective, it's essential to living the Sermon on the Mount lifestyle. It enables us to reject all the allures of the spirit of the age because we're able to make the confession. Secondly, the eternal perspective enables us to persevere through trials, challenges. I tell you, when all hell is breaking loose against your life, when every trial and challenge that you can imagine is caving in and pressing in upon you, there's an eternal vision that anchors you into something more than what's going on in the here and now. And if you read at the end of Hebrews 11, it talks about what these amazing heroes of faith, what they'd endure because they saw the reward. They were sawn in two. They were beaten and stoned and they lived this life in such, I mean, such challenge. Why, it says, because they looked to the reward persevering in this age is dramatically linked to a vision of the age to come. I tell you, woe is us at the end of the age when temporal judgments are pounding the planet, when the rage of Satan is breaking loose on the earth, and when the power of God has come upon this church. Woe be unto us if we don't have a vision of what's right around the corner. The, the most challenging time the earth has ever seen will be the last three and a half years. The Bible calls it the Great Tribulation. It'll be the worst time ever in human history. Woe on us if we don't have a vision to what's right around the corner of it. See, because there's a great apostasy coming, beloved. And that apostasy is so significant, 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us it is a sign of the end of the age. It's so significant, it's a timing indicator. It's so significant, the apostasy will be so grand, we'll be able to say, there are so many falling away, we are right on the cusp of the return of the Lord Jesus. It's going to be that significant. We must have a vision of the age to come to persevere through trials. And then thirdly, a vision, the eternal perspective... It gives us an, it ushers us right in, stunning how this works, right into the intimacy message. 
right in to the understanding of the Father. Because he's the God who sees in secret. And he's the God who rewards. And he's the God who prepares. And he's the God who considers. He sees. He's not, you know, we, we like, God, you know, a lot of preachers will say, God's watching you. He's watching you. Don't step out of line. He's watching every move you make. And we sort of get this mean thing, you know, God's kind of mean. He's kind of following me around, ready to nail me. And, and there is an accounting. I will say this. There is an accounting for every word, every thought. It's true. But God's mentality, I think, is so different. He doesn't come from so that negative, I don't like you very much kind of origination. He comes from somebody who goes, I like you. I, I made you. I, I like you. I make everything I make is good, and I like you because I made you, and you're good, and I like you. And so he, he sees. He looks into your life, and he considers. You know, David said it this way. He goes, you know every word I say before I say it. You know all my thoughts before I can even put them together. You ever been misunderstood by a person? He's never misunderstood you. When you said it all wrong, and everybody around you went, what a dork. God goes, hey, little buddy, I got it. It's okay. I totally understand. I know all your words before you even say them. I I totally get it. He sees, he considers. He's the one who sees in secret. He's the one who prepares for you. He prepared for you. You know, he's the dad. Okay, so just get your mind around it. It's your birthday. You're at work or you're at school or wherever you are. And your dad, like, takes off work early, goes home, and, like, gets all your favorite things and puts the streamers and the balloons and the, the cake and the fun thing that you like and he puts it all together in the house and he gets the dream of your heart and's waiting there for you. You know, the, the car or the whatever. I don't know what your dream is. But the dream is right there and your dad thought about you and prepared it all for you. He's that kind of a father. He's the God who sees. See, the God that prepares a place for you is the God that loves you. He's the God that wants to make you a son or a daughter. He's the God that longs for a family. There's a son that longs for a bride. There's a father who longs for a family. And the Father, in His preparation of the eternal city, and His consideration of you beforehand, and the one who sees into your life, He is making a place for you. Because He likes you. He likes you. Vision of the eternal ushers you right into sonship. Strips you of the orphan mentality. See, the orphan mentality lives for all it can get in this age because it doesn't believe there's any inheritance. See, an orphan doesn't believe it has an inheritance. I don't have any parents. I don't have an inheritance. God says, I've given you the spirit of adoption. I've given you the spirit of sonship. You are my child. And guess what I have for you? An inheritance. What's an inheritance? It's the reward of the age to come. The eternal perspective ushers you right into intimacy. Right into the Father's heart. All right, let's flip on over. 1 Corinthians 9. How are we doing? Thank you, John. 
John's doing good. Anyone else? <laughs> You're the best, John. <clears throat> What's the motivation in the heart of the God who prepares? What's motivating the heart of the God who has prepared a place for you? What's motivating his heart? Love. Love. See, the new Jerusalem isn't just some stainless steel looking place you can't kind of like get any dirt on the rug. It's a place completely constructed, specifically architectured for you. The Lamb will be its light. What is the glory that's coming off of Jesus that lights up the entire place? What is the sense of the presence of God in the air when the whole place is lit up by the jasper coming off of Jesus? You want to sense the presence of God as just like permeating the whole place. It's our home. It's where we're headed. 1 Corinthians 9. Here we go, verse 24. And next week we'll pick up in 1 Corinthians 3. I just tell you that so maybe you could look ahead and just cheat a little bit and read a little bit. Verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it, obtain the prize. Verse 25. And... Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate or moderate or self-controlled in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run this way or thus, not with uncertainty. I think as the New American Standard says, not aimlessly. This way I fight or thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body, I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. I want to I move through this. I want to touch a few of the phrases. And we'll, we'll land it there at the last, becoming disqualified. We'll land it there. But uh, let's, I want to draw your attention to this, this phrase. It says, run in such a way that you may obtain it. Everyone's running, but the apostolic admonition to us is run in such a way to obtain it. Here's the thing. This is not talking about competition as it relates to you, I mean. It's not talking about you competing with another in order to win something with God. The imagery can lead us that direction because we get the picture of everybody running a race and the ones that are running to win have to run in a certain way, running in such a way. But what he's talking about as it lands for you and I is that we need to conduct our lives in such a way that we would win the crown. It's not about beating someone else out. And here's here's the wisdom of this. What we will do many times in this life we will measure our Christianity by that which another is or is not doing. 
He's not talking about that, beloved. See, there's, there's no wisdom in that, and here's why. One person is gifted at a seven, another person is gifted at a four. In whatever. The guy that's gifted at the seven, if he's competing against someone else, he might look at somebody else who's gifted at a four level, and that guy kicks it back from running at a seven, which he is gifted and graced to run at, and moves it back into five zone. So he lives a little bit unfaithfully in this life, yet it's actually more than the guy that's running at the four. The guy that's running at the four is fully pressing in 100% to all the grace that God has given him, being fully obedient, and God is giving him a level four in his life. You know what? The guy that's the seven that's running at the five and he's measuring himself against the guy that the four is the four, he is unwise. Because he is living unfaithfully and disobedient in certain areas, not esteeming the fact that God graced him to run in a greater level of faithfulness, a greater level of obedience unto a different path, yet he measures himself by somebody else, and that's completely unwise. See, this thing is not about any kind of a competition. And see, then the guy that's the four, he'll go, I'm doing all I can, I'm doing a four. And he looks at the guy that's a a seven or something and goes, oh, I'm so unworthy, I can't do a seven. God goes, little buddy, you're at a four, way to go. You're gifted for four, you're awesome. God goes, I like you. You're running in such a way to obtain the crown. You're being faithful and obedient in every area. How awesome are you? Don't worry about the person that's at the seven. It's not the point. And so the running in such a way has nothing to do with being competitive. It has everything to do with having the desire to attain under this imperishable crown. And it has everything to do with faithfulness and obedience. Faithfulness and obedience. That's the point. Nothing to do with competitiveness. And so there's a heart posture that we take. The run in such a way is posture your heart to be faithful to what? To the invitations and grace that God has afforded you and obedient to what? To the leading of the Holy Spirit as God directs you. That's all you can do in this life. When God gives you grace, you're faithful to lean into that grace and do what that grace enables you to do. And then you're obedient that when the Holy Spirit says left, you go left. When he says right, you go right. And that's all you can do. And therefore, if you are faithful to God's grace in your life and you're obedient to the Holy Spirit, guess what? The pay is the same whether you're taking a nap or whether you're winning, you know, souls in stadiums. The pay is the same. It's yes to the grace of God and yes to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. In in both your hands in this life, this is what you have, a yes and a no. I will encourage you. This is real profound. When it's the Lord asking, don't say no. Say yes. Yes. Over and over and over, we have the opportunity to say yes and no. Yes to grace and yes to the leadership of the Spirit of the Lord. That's it. Running in such a way is posturing your heart to say, God, in the grace of God, I'll say yes every time. Every time I'll say yes. Running in such a way, that's what he's talking about. Then he says, one runs, they all compete for a prize. One runs for a perishable crown. 
They run, think about this, in order to obtain a perishable crown. How stunning is that? It says, whoever competes is temperate in all things. They're self-controlled, they're focused. They're competing, they're trying. But they're running for a perishable crown? You know what a perishable crown is? One that will decay, that's all it means. One that will decay. It'll fade away. It'll corrupt, it'll rot. Can you imagine, beloved, think about this for a second. We live our whole lives, can you imagine living your whole life, focusing your life, self-controlling yourself, being temperate in all things, so you can get something that will not exist. You know what's an interesting thing about a perishable crown? You know who the only person is that can give a perishable crown? Men. God doesn't give perishable crowns. Men do. So what is it saying? It says the guy that's running for the imperishable crown, he is running his whole life to get men's accolades. He's running his whole life to get ahead in this realm, to get ahead in the temporal. He's running his whole life to get people to high-five him. He's focused so people will like him. He's self-controlled so men will think he's great. And I tell you what, beloved, I know this. Men will crown you over and over and over. Men don't mind crowning men. We do it all the time. We do it in the ministry. We do it in entertainment. We do it in sports. We do it in music. We love giving crowns. Why? Because there's an inbred wiring in us that wants to worship. We just don't recognize we're supposed to be falling in love and worshiping Jesus. We're going to crown him with many crowns. But instead, what we do in this life, we crown men with crowns. But every crown that we can give another man in this life, it is a decaying crown that will rot with no eternal significance. And oh, that we would never live our lives focused fully on this realm, running for the imperishable. Running for the imperishable. I mean, for the perishable. Running for the perishable. Oh, how often have we strived for men's approval? How often have we run for men's accolades? How often have we tried to get position and platform and title? How often have we tried to get the money because if we thought we had the status, we would have power in this life? I tell you, it's fading, it's perishable. It will decay. Moth and rust will corrupt it. Oh, that we wouldn't live that way. I can't, I, I can't, uh, I'll have to look at it hard, but the pain of considering how often have I lived my life for the perishable? How often have I run for the crown that men can give me? Oh, that's painful. We've got to look right at that. We've got to run in a different way. So he says, don't run for the imperishable. He goes, I'm not running for the, imperish- for the perishable. I'm running for the imperishable. He goes, don't run for the perishable. Run for the imperishable. What's that? It's simply this. The non-decaying crown. The crown that will last forever. The only one that gives that crown is God. God's the one that gives that crown. He's the one that gives the crown that doesn't fade. 
You know, in the Bible, there's four different kinds, of specific kinds of crowns that are mentioned. And each one has a different sort of twist on it, a different measure of faithfulness, that if you live, like, faithful in this area, you get this crown. If you live faithful in this area, you get this crown. And then you go through the book of Revelation, and get this, there are at least 15 different rewards that are given to the overcomers. 15 different rewards. What are those? Imperishable non-decaying rewards. You know, some of them are food. Come on, somebody. Some of them are food. That's the best. He goes, I'll grant you to sit with me on my throne. That's good seats. He goes, I'll give you Psalm 2, just like my father gave it to me. What's Psalm 2? A rod of iron to rule the nations. He goes, I'll give you a white garment. What's this one? I'll give you a white stone. So he goes, a white rock? I guarantee when Jesus, the God-man, hands you a white stone and gives you a name that no one else knows, that's going to be a good day. And I guarantee that stone will be the best white stone you have ever seen. It's going to be a good day. Because I'm going to write my name on you. I mean, we're so futile, so, you know, we're so boxed in. You're going to get like a pen and write on me? Like Jesus, like that's what we picture, you know? I tell you something, when he inscribes his name on you, it will send your whole being into ecstasy in a way you've never dreamt. It will impact your spirit and your soul in such a way. What is that? That's the embrace of the attributes of God going right into you. He writes his name upon you. I want the imperishable, I think. I don't think I want what men can give me that's going to decay. I think I want what God can give me that will never decay. And I, th- I think he just gives us a little insight. He just goes, here's a few of the things I'm going to give. And this is going to go on and on and on and on. And then he goes, run. I'm, I'm landing. Just give me a minute. Not with uncertainty. You know what uncertainty is? Aimlessness. You know what the uncertain runner is? Unclear about his direction. He has no clue where he's going. In other words, the finish line for him is foggy. The uncertain runner, he's aimless, he's purposeless, he's focusless. What is he? He's one who has no vision of the reward. When we live in this life without a vision of the reward, we run aimlessly. We run without aim. We run without certainty. And oh, you know what it boils down to? This this is what it boils down to. It's when we believe that heaven is boring. What is that? That's the clear indicator that we're running with uncertainty. So we have no picture of the age to come. 
When you believe that the new Jerusalem and the the age to come and then the age after that, when you think that's going to be a boring existence, I guarantee you, you fit right into there running without aim because you have no picture of the ecstasy that that place holds. And for you to think of it as boring, you are absolutely clouded in your revelation of what it is. Running without aim running without purpose, running without certainty. So what happens when we run without certainty? All of a sudden we're swayed and moved and we we go running after all sorts of things in this life. Give me a status. Give me a salary. Give me security. We have no picture of the certainty with which we can run and the prize that's in front of us. And all that... I wish every person in the body of Christ would have certainty. Can you imagine if we all ran with certainty? If our gate was set? If our purpose was narrow and focused? If we all lived that way? All the things that distract, all the things that take away every other lover that's got our attention, all the focuses of the flesh, all the spirit of the age, all the allures of this life, would they fade or would they fade? And the fact that those have anchors in us is clear. We're running without aim. He goes, I discipline my body. I bring it into subjection. And this is what he's talking about. He goes, I will live focused in this life, rejecting the spirit of the age, rejecting the lust of the flesh. I will live faithful to the grace of God and obedient. I will discipline myself to say yes. There's a discipline of ourselves and the grace of God that enables us to walk the path that he's given us. God wants to impart that grace to us. And then finally he goes, that I may not be disqualified. Disqualified from what? From receiving the reward. From receiving the crown. In its worst, and I believe it's applicable, in its worst expression, disqualified from eternity with God. The word is rejected. Disqualified is rejected. It could be this, that somebody could run without focus at such a level that they give themselves fully to their flesh that they, they will finally reject the man Christ Jesus because they've given themselves fully to the spirit of the age. But in its, I think, most proper way within the text, he's talking about being rejected from receiving the crown. Rejected from receiving the reward. And how does that happen? It happens this way, that we go in life without a focus on the age to come. We live just sort of according to the spirit of the age. We have a a genuine yes in our heart to Jesus, but we lack faithfulness and grace. We lack obedience to the Holy Spirit because we get talked out of being radical for God because the spirit of the age tells us you don't have to be radical. And so what we have is a poor, uh, I'll use a theological term, exegesis of the way that we live in this life, a poor uh, breaking down of the scripture And we think this, you can sort of have a sloppy yes in your heart, live any old way you want, and you're going to have government in the age to come. And I tell you, well, that's false. And we'll get to 1 Corinthians 3 next week, but there is a clear indicator there will be many that will suffer loss because they have not run in such a way to obtain the crown. 
So worship team, just come. Here's what it boils down to for us. It boils down to this. Are we living our lives faithful to God's grace and obedient to the uh, leadings of the Holy Spirit? Or are we living our life swayed by the spirit of the age, the lust of the flesh, and, and, and the, the pressure to be normal, the pressure to have your anchors in this age, the pressure to have your anchor in this life will absolutely bring you into running in such a way that you will find yourself disqualified for the reward. It's absolutely true, beloved. It might sound hard, but that is absolutely true. And I don't want to stand there in that day and look at Jesus in the eye and have him show me all these invitations and grace, but I listen to the voices of the crowd and I listen to the world and I listen to those around me that didn't quite understand and I yielded to the pressure to fit in and not stick out and therefore I forfeited the grace of God extended to me. I want to run in such a way, run in such a way to receive that which is imperishable. I want to run in such a way to receive, to receive the reward. Let's just stand. Run in such a way. I want to conduct my life. I want to conduct my life in faithfulness and obedience. See, the perishable stuff men will crown you for, it's all the externals. It's all what looks good in the eyes of men. The reward goes to those that look the best. That's the perishable. The eternal, it's the inner issues. Stuff that men don't esteem. It's meekness and humility, it's fasting, it's prayer, it's serving, it's giving. It's all the internal issues. It's a Sermon on the Mount lifestyle.